0: Well, as I said at the beginning of the uh, service, today is a uh, very special day for us. Uh, of course, uh, you all know of our uh, great interest, interest in Eretz Israel, uh, but uh, today we are pleased and honored to have with us uh, Brigadier General Gal Hirsch and his family. Uh, uh, Gal Hirsch was born Uh, In a small town in the Negev, in the desert in Israel, and he has dedicated himself to a military career since childhood. He's taken part in all of Israel's military confrontations since 1982, leaving a unique signature on a wide scope of strategic thinking owing to his deep understanding of operational art and military planning. After graduating from a military academy with honors, he volunteered for and was accepted into a prestigious elite commando reconnaissance unit of the paratroopers uh, brigade. Rising in the ranks of the IDF, he served among other posts as chief of operations in central command and commandant of the IDF officers training school. He was promoted to Brigadier General in 2005 and appointed Commander of the Galilee Division in Northern Command, the position he held during the 2006 Second Lebanon War. According to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Hirsch is a worthy and admired fighter and officer who has filled a number of command positions and with courage and creativity, has led those under his command into battle and on military operations on many occasions. Hirsch established the Defense of Shield Holdings, which specializes in innovative technologies in defense uh, and security-related sectors for governments and major corporations. From 2012 to 2015, Hirsch was called back to serve in the IDF as a full active reservist appointed as deputy commander of the new IDF Depth Corps. He also teaches at various IDF leadership programs and serves as chairman of the, leader- of the Israel Leadership Institute. Brigadier General uh, Hirsch graduated from Bar-Ilan University, receiving a BA in Mideastern Studies with honors and holds an MBA from Tel Aviv University. But his most important job is, of course, uh, being a husband and father. And so we are just really honored and pleased to have with us also uh, uh, General Hirsch's wife, uh, Donna, and two of his three daughters. His eldest daughter, Miori, uh, is a law student in Tel Aviv. She is. Uh, not here today, she's in Israel, but with us today our daughters uh, Ofri and Nir. And so welcome to Beth Messiah Congregation, uh, and we're just so pleased uh, to have you with us. And so uh, at this time, uh, Brigadier General Hirsch, come and uh, speak. It's our honor and our pleasure to have you with us. Come and share with us today. Oh, and as you are coming up, as you're coming up... <laughs> Good heavens. Uh, General Hirsch is also the author of A Defensive Shield, An Israeli Special Forces Commander on the Front Lines of Counterterrorism. And I actually want to read something about, about the book. Okay, you can stay right there. Good, okay. <laughs> Look at, I'm telling you to do something. That's really kind of scary. Okay, all right. Uh, Israel Defense Force Brigadier General Gal Hirsch, in 2009, Hirsch's autobiographical book in Hebrew, War Story, Love Story was published and instantly appeared on the Israeli bestseller list where it stayed for many months. The description of his own personal journey offers deep, open-minded, and critical insights into the most significant milestones in Israel's defense in the past 30 years in which he played a key role. This new revised and reconceived English edition of the book offers international readers a comprehensive, one-of-a-kind contextual description of Israeli national defense developments serving as a valuable tool for understanding contemporary security challenges in the Middle East. The book has been praised as a lesson in leadership, bravery, and endurance. It is a remarkable testimony to the bond between the Jewish people and its Bible and land. And I also want to say, just yesterday, I read a review uh, of the book on a website called Defense News. Uh, And it really gave a glowing recommendation uh, of of, a defensive shield. And so uh, what an honor and privilege it is uh, to have you here at Beth Messiah Congregation. On behalf of all of us, welcome. To Beth Messiah.
1: Shabbat Shalom. shalom. Thanks very much for inviting me. And thanks very much, Susan and Bieloda, Richard and Jerry, Katz, Neddy, Bricky, for arranging all this event. It is my honor and pleasure to be here in such a place, with such an audience. Thank you very much, ladies, gentlemen, kids, for being here and uh, giving me the opportunity to tell you a story. And my story begins at the top of Masada Cliff. My parents were pioneers, and I grew up in a small settlement in the Negev. There was nothing there, believe me. Tents, then barracks. We were lucky to be the first people that had a flat, a small one, in Arad. Today, it looks like a miracle. Arad, it's a city. And it's not the only place that looks like a miracle, because if you take a look from space from a satellite to Israel, you can see immediately where where Israel starts, where Israel stops, and where the Arab world continues. Israel, green. The other, desert. We did all that in less than 70 years. Isn't that a miracle? Isn't that something special? It looks unique. And I'm privileged and honored to be a part of all that. And I thank you for supporting all our efforts there to establish the State of Israel, to create homeland, the old homeland of the Jewish people, to create it, to maintain it, and to make sure that things that happened to the Jewish people along the years, like the Holocaust, will never happen again. Now, I grew up as just, you know, a regular, normal kid. We have nothing special there in the Negev, no prosperity at all, believe me. My parents worked very hard to establish the place and just to bring food to our home. But this special day, the special event that I would like to remark, thank you, is my bar mitzvah event. At my bar mitzvah, according to the tradition in Arad, in the Negev, we are all, Till today, children of Arad are climbing very early in the morning up to Masada cliff, to the place, to the fortress that was built by the rebels that fought against the Roman Empire. And as I believe you know, they fought till they died and they did not want to surrender. And when they understood that this is a lost battle, they all committed suicide and jumped from the cliff. Now every year, a teenager that has his Bar Mitzvah or Bat Mitzvah, or IDF, Israel Defense Forces soldiers, in their basic training are swearing up there on the top of Masada Cliff that Masada will never fail again. Now that's what happened to me during my Bar Mitzvah event. And that's the way the ceremony goes like. You put your tefillin in the remains in the old synagogue of the rebels on the top of Masada Cliff, prayer, Very exciting, all the family around you. And then, as you know, we all like celebrations, parties, and good food. We had to go down to Arad, eat a good meal, and speeches, as it is in Bar Mitzvahs. But down the cliff, there was an official delegation from the Israeli Defense Forces that waited for us and told us that my cousin Amnon was killed in action that day. He was a helicopter pilot, you know... He was a role model for me. We were all shocked. Of course, there was no bar mitzvah, no celebrations, no speeches. We were all running to the cars, directly to the funerals. And after seven days of mourning, somehow I found myself. I do not really know how. It was a voice that told me to follow his footprints, to take the torch and to fill the gap. And I found myself, I was 13 years old, in the recruiting agency asking to recruit to the IDF Military Academy, just as Amnon the late did. And I had to pass a tough, tough, Spartan-like screening process. Thousands of Israeli teenagers are looking for a place in the Israeli Military Academy. 80 starts every year, 30 finish after four years. And I was lucky to be among the people that started and finished after four years. And when I was 18 years old, I've decided to go and volunteer to the Israeli paratroopers, And then, when I was so happy to find out that I've been received to the military Israeli paratroopers, I've decided to try and check whether they'll take me to the commandos of the paratroopers, And I had to pass another screening process. And I was lucky to be among the 17 that were chosen to be Commando fighters in the reconnaissance unit of the paratroopers, what we call in Hebrew Sayeret, which means the elite unit. So, you know, after a few weeks of training, I found myself in Beirut Airport, Lebanon, under fire. It was 1982. First Lebanon War started. And since that day, Beirut Airport, under fire, I'm finding myself. All along these decades, till recently, fighting under fire. And the enemies and the rivals are changing. In the beginning, I remember myself first time, face to face, finding myself in front of an enemy, a terrorist holding weapon. It was a PLO, Palestinian terrorists, along the Lebanese border. And then along the years, Hezbollah emerged In the beginning, as a Shiite authentic movement inside Lebanon. But later on, not too long later, it became an Iranian proxy that actually behaves like an Iranian front guard with a direct access to Israel and to the free world along our borders in Lebanon. And it didn't take too long later, December 87, when I'm a company commander and before that I've been a platoon leader, and a power troopers company commander, and then an infantry cadets in the IDF officer training school. I've been a company commander as well. And I can still remember this Friday where my company is staying in an alert situation, just as regular, you know, most of the Israeli companies and battalions are staying in a kind of alert during weekends. We do not go home. And I can remember the siren that called us to jump directly to Gaza Strip because the first intifada started, December 87, and it was another kind of warfare that we did not know. It was new to us, this kind of warfare, against riots, with fire, with many people that come to kill you. It was not a demonstration. It was a riot that we never knew before. New kind of terror. And just after that, the Gulf War started, first Gulf War. You know, these days, I asked my commander in the paratroopers. after being the commander of the engineering unit of the paratroopers, asked him whether I can go and study for my BA studies and to get married with Dana, my wife, because we knew each other for about three years, but I believe we met. Met each other 30 days. I've been always inside Lebanon, behind the lines, in many missions, and I wanted very much to build my family. And my commander said, "Yes, it's okay. You can go and start your BA studies, and that's the time for wedding and everything." Now, since we were paratroopers, our chupa was of course a canopy of a parachute, you know. <laughs> and the rabbi was the paratroopers' rabbi, of course. And the people that danced around the chuppah were my company warriors, the fighters, yes? So, actually, I thought that three years of silence are on the way. But it was not that light, because Saddam Hussein has different plans. And when he started to launch missiles towards Israel, I was asked immediately to come back to service and to be the one that will plan the paratroopers troopers' operations with the Special Forces operations in West Iraq. And then, after that, after the first Gulf War, I was asked to change uniform and not to be any more a trooper, but to change into Air Force uniform. Look, it's a kind of a trauma for a paratrooper trooper to change his red beret into a blue one, his red shoes into a black one. It's a trauma that takes you something like about two minutes to recover from. <laughs> because everybody understands that to serve in the Israeli Air Force It's something special, and especially if you serve there as an officer in the Special Forces. In Israel, Shaldag, the Israeli Special Forces, are in the Air Force. And you know, this mighty war machine, the Israeli Air Force, when you put inside a Special Forces unit, it's just like melting sugar and honey together. It's always very, very good and effective war machine. And I was privileged to be Deputy Commander of the Israeli Special Forces, then, back to be a battalion commander in the Paratroopers, and back to the Air Force to be the commander of the Israeli Special Forces. I was appointed by Chief of Staff Ehud Barak to be the commander of the Israeli Special Forces. And for three years, I led many of the missions, covered mainly, that unfortunately we will never be able to speak about behind the lines, for about three years. Now, after doing that... I made my my MBA studies in Tel Aviv. And I thought that I'm going to have a quiet year. But then started Hashmonaim Tunnel event. And it was during Oslo Accord in Judea, Samaria, and Gaza. We thought that peace on earth is coming with the Palestinians, as you remember. But it was not that like. And I was called back from university. And the chief of staff told me, look, Gal, you will be the one that will prepare Judea and Samaria division for war. Although we are in the middle of peace process, I am not counting on that. We must be prepared, and that's what I've done. Now, during my preparations, when I'm preparing Judea and Samaria, IDF's division for war, if the peace process will be broken, if the Palestinian Authority won't show responsibility. Have they? I don't think so. During that period, A well-prepared ambush made by Islamic Jihadists that were waiting for me, succeeded to target me north to Ramallah. Now, you know, it was just after so many years in combat, acting covertly behind the lines, many operations, many wars, always under fire, and this time they succeeded to target me. Now, I was badly injured. There was a brain damage, My shoulder was smashed, my backbone is broken, the lungs collapsed, ribs smashed. Everything here, it's not bones, it is titanium. And the most terrible injury was that all the nerve system on the right side of my body has been detached from the backbone, and I became half paralyzed. And actually, if you could see me these days, you will see me something like that on a wheelchair, in the beginning, of course, I was under intensive care in Hadassah, Jerusalem, and then to Tel Hashomer Hospital for another year of recovery procedure. Now you know, for me, it was a terrible failure. How could I let them succeed? I was sure that I must recover mainly in order to win, and the victory should be returning back. To the battlefield. Now I was 97% disabled and nobody believed that I'll be recovered. And you know when Dana pushed me with a wheelchair to the recovery department and the doctor, a very famous one, manager of the recovery department in Tel HaShomer Hospital, first time saw me after I've arrived from Hadassah, Jerusalem, he told me, look it's a terrible injury. It's not only one department that should take care of you because we need to make it a multi-effort. It will take a long, long time. Tell me, Gal, what will be your goals, your objectives during the recovery procedures? What would you like to achieve? Now, I was not ready for this question. I was on a wheelchair, laying this way, and looking to the doctor, feeling terrible. Really, mainly, not only the pain, and the morphine's effects. It was mainly the feeling of failure. They succeeded to target me. For the first time, I was not the one that won. And I told him, it was like in heartbeat. Sometimes questions, specific questions, crystallize your mind, and you know what are you here for. And I told him, doctor, I want to be able to shoot, to hug, and to write. He was shocked. Said to shoot. I told him, "Yes, doctor. I must hold my rifle again and to be back, be back to the battlefield. I must be able to hug Dana and the girls. I must be able to write orders to my subordinates." Well, start to work, doctor. And after about eight months of recovery procedure, you know, it was it was tough. It was it was difficult. It was painful. And one night. Suddenly, this finger started to move. And I was so happy that I called immediately the chief of staff office and asked to speak with him immediately. And the secretary asked me, Gal, is that urgent? The chief of staff is in a meeting. I told him, yes, it is urgent. And he took the phone and said, yes, Gal, what, ha- what happened? I told him, I'm healthy. I said, what do you mean by healthy? I saw you in the hospital three weeks ago. I told him my trigger finger moves. <laughs> Prepare my brigade, I'm coming back. Now, one Sunday, I left the bed, my bed in the hospital. On that Thursday, the same week, I became the Benjamin Brigade Commander in charge of Ramallah region, the north part of Jerusalem, actually the biggest Regional Infantry Brigade of the Israel Defense Forces. Now, in the beginning, I was planned to be the commander of Hebron area. But I insisted on being back to Benjamin Brigade, Ramallah region. And why is that? Because that was the place where that ambush took place. And for me, national and personal is just the same word. It is a personal issue, an open account. I wanted to make sure that they will know that they haven't succeeded, that I am back. Here I am. You thought you are sending me to another world or to hospital for the rest of my life. Well, I am back. I am the commander in chief here in this region. I felt such a victory that day. It was great, although I was 74% disabled. Still, I live with pain till today. Today I am for the rest of my life, because nobody can fix my injury and my disability. I'm 59% disabled, and they told me, don't come back again to any committee, nothing will reduce it, no technology or know-how to fix your nerves or brain damage or your broken backbone or... But I'm serving st- still, still serving in the IDF since then, and after being the Benjamin Brigade Regional Commander, I became J3 in charge of operations of Judea and Samaria and all Israel CENTCOM, led Israel as chief planner to conduct defensive shield operation. A strike to stop the suicide bombing inside Israel. You know, there was a time where suicide bombers infiltrated into the mass populated areas of Israel, killing people on daily basis with suicide belts made from fertilizers mainly. In buses, in malls, in the streets, everywhere, I led the IDF to defensive shield operation in order to stop it. And just after that, I started to plan the security barrier known today as the wall. Now, the wall is a very effective system. It's not really a wall. Most of the places, it's technology and fences and all the goodies that the Israeli industry knows how to produce, and our know-how brings us. Sometimes it is a war. I had to plan it, and I knew that I'm going to pay a price for that. Because today, if you will Google me, you'll find that I'm an official war criminal according to the Palestinian terror organizations. And I'm quite proud to be an official war criminal according to their opinion. And just after that, I became officer training school commandant in command on a special place for me, the IDF Officer Training School. First, because there you train the next young leadership for Israel. and That's what I did and trained and gave certifications for thousands of Israeli officers. I'm very proud about it. I was honored to serve there. And you know, the IDF Officer Training School is a special place for me, not only because of the specific and unique role of this place for the Israel Defense Forces and the State of Israel and the Israeli society. It is important even for me, especially for me, because that was the place where when I've been a cadet, a young cadet, there I found my wife Donna. And that's why I urge always Israeli teenagers to go and try and be officers. Because if you go to this specific place, officer training school, you will find your best wife or husband. That's a place for elite families to be established. And you know, about a year and a half ago, Ofri, actually, Ofri is with us, she's with us, second lieutenant Ofri, actually has been graduated in officer training school of the Israeli Defense Forces as well. And and today she is an operations officer in the Israeli Air Force, managing a wing operations room with five squadrons of F-16s and Apache helicopters. And this little baby, as we will always see her, today send jet fighters and Apache helicopters to their missions and control them 24-7. And her commander gave her an approval to be with us for these two weeks in the States. Hannah Elder sister, Mary, she's a captain in the Israel Defense Forces, a reserve captain. And Nir is with us today, next month, 14 years old. She is in high school and training to be an officer. Now, our family treats itself as a fortress that must work 24 7 to secure the state of Israel. It's not about military career, it's about a life mission. That's our mission, we serve the state of Israel. Just try to imagine what a family under fire feels like, that since the family has been established, it is always in uniform or non-uniform in the government missions, and always under fires, injuries, funerals, unfortunately, and having tough experiences. Many nights, Donna and the girls Knowing that Daddy is behind the lines this night, they will never know where or what's the mission, but they knew that they are waiting all night long, not going to sleep, waiting to to hear the CH-53 Sikorsky's noise above the roofs of the special neighborhood inside the Air Force Base of the Special Forces. Because if the Sikorsky's are coming back early in the morning and they hear it, and all night long was... Silent, mission accomplished. But if along that night sirens were heard and Apache helicopters or Cobra helicopters or Blackhawks were called for evacuation missions to support the special forces in their missions, they knew that there are troubles. And think about leaving that like for so many years. Family that knows that the danger is always there, And that's the way we lived for many, many years. After being the commander of the Israeli IDF officer training school, I became the commander of the 91st Division in charge of all the Lebanese-Israeli border. And I led that division to the war against Hezbollah, 2006. Ten years, exactly ten years ago. The last ten years since 2006 has been the most peaceful years that people can remember along the Israeli-Lebanon border. Children, you know, in the age of 10, going to school and never had to sit in shelter. Never heard sirens. It's quite unique for people that live in the north along the Lebanese border. Because we suffered so many traumatic memories there infiltrations and hostage situations and tanks and and anti-tank missiles towards buses and houses and rockets and others. But now 10 years of silence. And I want to tell you that I'm honored and privileged to lead my troops. I lost 60 of my men during this war. 121 of our soldiers were killed. 44 civilians were killed. But we have 10 years of silence, and what I want to tell you that we must be prepared that this struggle that I'm describing since I am 18 years old till now, this struggle will continue. We will continue mainly because I do not see any pink horizon in front of us, unfortunately. You know that six years ago, approximately, started what you call, you may call the Arab Spring, I prefer calling it the Middle East upheaval. All these states around Israel actually were something like a bottle that could contain the radical, fundamental, jihadist, Islamist genies inside that kind of bottle. But during this Arab Spring, the bottles are broken, actually, shattered, and genies outside. Travels freely around Israel, all around the Middle East. Nobody knows where can we contain it back to any jar or vessel or bottles. No bottles anymore. Syria is not Syria anymore. Iraq is not Iraq. Egypt, not sure. Sinai, which is a part of Egypt. It's exactly the place for Ansar Bayt al-Makdas An organization that sweared to ISIL, and it's ISIL today in Egypt, in Sinai. Libya, Lashkar-el-Islam, sweared to ISIL. Think about what happens in Yemen, Houthis. Think about what happens in Syria. All along our border, it is not anymore the Syrian army. It is Jabhat al-Nusra, a version of Al-Qaeda. ISIL is everywhere. started to infiltrate into Europe. You can see the results in Paris. Brussels, wait—it's only the beginning. We can see here hints for the future. Look what happened in Australia, Africa, Central Asia, and I must tell you one thing: genie is out of the bottle. He travels all around us. The UGA ungoverned area is a new phenomenon. No states that can contain this radical, fundamental jihadist energy anymore. So we must be prepared for that because it's a kind of disease that spread all around us and infiltrates everywhere, and all they want to do is to kill and destroy the advantages and the achievements of the free world and the Judeo-Christian culture. Now look, I'm going to finish and take questions in one, let's say, declaration. It is not an official declaration. It comes from pain. We must be well prepared for the future. It's not going to stop. Struggle in the Middle East is our way of life. When you come and visit Israel, you can see what we've done in the last years of independence. We did a lot. You can see the roads, the cranes everywhere, new neighborhoods. High-tech startup nation, Nobel prizes. We even have two bronze medals in the Olympic Games, <laughs> till now. This Olympic Games. And I must tell you that when you come to Israel and hesitate whether to go to eat in this restaurant or that one, to go to that film or to that show, you know, people are going to see Sia in Tel Aviv. And when Paul McCartney comes, everybody enjoys normal life. It looks that like. But let me tell you one thing. It's a bubble. You cannot be a member of the OECD, be a startup nation, having Nobel Prizes, having bronze or gold medals in the Olympic Games. You cannot do that without companies in the valley, squadrons in the air, flotillas in the sea, the best Mossad secret services, and ISA and the best special forces all around the globe. If you want to preserve the state of Israel as a strong state that creates normal life for its citizens, be a homeland for the Jewish people wherever they are. You cannot. And that's what I wanted to tell you, ladies, gentlemen, and kids, our next generation. The struggle will continue. We must be strong. We must Educate, because the key issue is education. People sometimes become tired from fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. And we need to make sure that we will prepare the next generation of Israelis to lead, to fight, to be prepared, and to help the rest of the world to be prepared as well against terrorism and evil forces. And every time the world... Forgot that Israel is your front guard. And everything that starts in Israel, if you won't support it, will later on come to Manhattan, Bali, Beslan, London, Madrid, Paris, Brussels, Mumbai, Sydney, Melbourne, Bangkok, Delhi, you name it. It happens mainly because when it starts around us in Israel, we do not get all the support we can have. Because if we can, it may stop in the free world fortress, the state of Israel. So thanks very much, and I'm here for questions and answers. And then I would like to give Rabbi Silverman and you a present from me. So, questions. Sir. Well, the American support... And the budget we receive from the United States of America along the years to help us have the advantage in the Middle East is very, very important for us. Now, I really don't know what's going to happen and whether it's going to happen during uh, Obama's uh, period or maybe the next president of the United States. But I want to tell you, as people who live, in the United States of America, two main things. First, is that we really appreciate, and it comes from the bottom of my heart, believe me, appreciate this support and budget, because Iron Dome that successfully intercepts any rocket that has been launched towards Israel is made by the genius in Raphael and uh, in I- IAI uh, in Israel, But it's thanks to you, Americans, that support us and help us build much more batteries that will be able to intercept such rockets. And when we have, we are the first nation that has F-35s, Adir in Hebrew, with Israeli systems inside, or taking uh, the jet fighters that Ofri is operating in the Air Force, Uh, the F-16i model, which means an American F-16 with an Israeli systems inside, this and many other systems and technologies train us and let us be with the cutting-edge technology. It is very important for us, and I hope that these things of the budget and the arguments about the budget and the scope of the budget will be solved. I really do not know what will be the results, but I'm counting on our both leaders that they'll solve the problem. One other thing that is very important for me to tell you is that from time to time, you hear about the friction between the White House and Jerusalem. And since I'm working on the ground with U.S. armed forces, I can tell you that when we are cooperating with U.S., SANTCOM, EUCOM, AFRICOM, SOCOM, and others, your Air Force, your Navy, intelligence services, it is exciting to see the Brotherhood. On the ground, we hug each other. This friction between Jerusalem and the White House is really something that we do not see. When I sit with the American officers or NCOs or just the operators of the SEALs or any other unit, I just see my brothers in arms and this bond, commitment, strong and warm relationship between us is the real thing. It's the real thing because the people share so many values and threats and understand the importance of cooperation and living together and working together that the friction between leaders, if it happens from time to time does not affect on the core issue, which is the relationship between the nations and the people.